Welcome to a special episode of EW's Game of Thrones podcast. I'm James Hibbard, and I'm here with Darren Franich, and we are still reeling from last night's incredible Battle of the Bastards. There is so much to talk about, and to me, this episode is the one that basically gave fans, basically gave us everything we wanted. I mean, there was a massive battle, unlike anything we have seen before. We got to see Danny's uh, three dragons all in action at the same time. We got to see uh, resurrected Jon Snow in action hero mode. We got to see Jon and Ramsay face off, both in conversation and one-on-one. And of course, we got the what fans have been wanting for so long, and that is Ramsay Bolton getting his comeuppance at the hands of Sansa Stark. Darren, what was your first blush takeaway of this one? James, this was an episode that had been teased as a big battle episode, that battle being the Battle of the Bastards in the Frozen North. And I'm so taken with the fact that when the episode began, it was about an entirely different, equally awesome, very different in terms of scope and setting battle scene. I mean, you had sort of two battles for the price of one this week, which was, you know, fair to say, like a big, huge episode of television on a level that we don't often see. So uh, I I think I enjoyed it a little bit. (laughs) And uh, so we're going to break down both that uh, battle double feature that we got. And and then we're also going to talk in the second half. Half the podcast. I was on set for the Battle of the Bastards in Northern Ireland last October and got to see some you know really fun behind the scenes uh, elements there. So we'll uh, we'll we'll get into that too. But yeah, let's start with the surprise battle, the unexpected battle in Marine. Uh, you know, uh, you know, like you just pointed out, it's so amazing that this show would have such a incredible sequence in it. And you have no interviews, you have no photos of it, you have no trailer footage. They kept it entirely under wraps. And so you go into the episode thinking, okay, we're going to ramp up to this big battle in the north. And from the very opening, uh, with that awesome shot of that uh, makeshift uh, pitch cannonball being fired into Marine with that you know, point of view shot, uh, you're like, whoa, this is, this is not what I expected at all. And it's entirely different action sequence that, uh, as you point out, is is, you know, in some ways, every bit as thrilling as what comes later. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think is really fun about this story is that, you know, as a fantasy saga, it begins at the moment of its most uh, its most reality, I guess you could say, like, you know, when we start with Game of Thrones, this is sort of a world where magic seems to have left. And it feels like, you know, just over and over throughout the course of this show, we're reminded that, like, you know, big, fantastical things are on their way. And I'm so struck by the fact that in the same episode, which, you know, we'll talk about this a little later, there was a battle sequence that was just the most kind of realistic in terms of just being, you know, tactical and strategic and involving so many extras and just so many people. That in that same episode, you had the moment with the dragons, which for me is like, you know, that is the cover of a fantasy novel that I used to read back in the day. You know, James, like it's just here are, you know, she is, Danny is now officially a dragon writer. She is very adept at sort of boarding her dragons now in a way that, uh, you know, she couldn't do even this time last season. The way that scene played out, I found interesting, too, because, I mean, in a way, James, it really felt like Marine this season 
you know, it's been a, a real slow burn and it's kind of been a lot of, you know, moments of kind of Tyrion trying to keep the peace and, and a lot of diplomacy. And it felt like quite unexpectedly this week's episode kind of it felt to me as if it really marked like we are now almost at the end of the Marine arc or, you know, we are we are really getting to the point where Slaver's Bay as a setting is kind of like, you know, reaching its apex, which I, I just found that so, so thrilling in a lot of different ways. Um, how did you kind of feel about how things played out with Danny and, and, and the Masters and how that whole arc sort of uh, left off in, in the episode? Yeah, the one thing I was a little confused about is why the Masters sort of agreed to meet her on this on this bluff when they're still <laughs> in the middle of, of assaulting the city. That didn't seem like a very wise move on their part. But um, but uh, yeah, I I, I agree uh, about uh, the you know the contrast between this very grounded, realistic battle and this very high fantasy three dragon sequence. And y- one thing that w- was was done in this is you realize that she has full control over them now. I mean, you know, Drogon showed up right on cue. And and then her other two dragons, you know, busted out right on cue. And then they also coordinated this attack. And you get the feeling, though, that she said Dracarys, you know, to, to like, you know, which is, you know, the, you know, the high Valerian command for for fire. It's like you, you get the feeling that the only reason she said it is because she likes to say that word. You know, she doesn't actually need to actually <laughs> say anything at this point to to get them to do exactly what she wants. I also really enjoyed. So, you know, we we cut from that moment, James, uh, you know, I, I believe that I kind of read once that the intention with the dragon scenes, which no matter how big this show gets, those scenes are so costly and require such an interesting you know, use of special effects and all this stuff that you know the show can't necessarily afford to do constantly. So whenever they show the dragons, there's always this, this intention to kind of let, let's show something that we haven't seen before. Let's see the dragons sort of do something that we haven't seen them do before. Definitely. And... Um... The other part of that sequence, of course, is Danny's conversation with Tyrion. Uh. Her initial idea, her her first her first instinct plan is let's let's just kill everybody. Let's crucify the masters. Let's you know burn their cities to the ground. And Tyrion, who's doing this spinning, backpedaling, hey, it's it's Marine on the rise. It's it's a city on the go. Turns and pushes back on her quite rightly that. You know, that isn't really different than what your father did or wanted to do, rather, in King's Landing. And he he sort of redeemed himself as this, uh, you know, de facto like, like hand of the queen that that they sort of serving as here by proving his worth in that moment, you know, by by pushing back on her and dialing back her her instinct to just burn them all, you know, in in the you know, words of, of, of her father, uh, you know, and do the smarter, more humane play, which uh, she, you know, thankfully recognized was the best move. Yeah, well, and I love that, too, because, I mean, this also plays in so well into, much as I love that battle scene, Obviously, if you know me, you know that my favorite scene in Marine this week was the moment when, uh, at long last, fan-favorite character Yara Greyjoy got to meet Danny. And what I loved about that scene so much was it really carried on from the spirit of the Tyrion conversation, which was kind of this idea of, you know... 
at one point, Danny said, like, all of our fathers were horrible people. I mean, you know, Tywin Lannister, the Mad King, uh, you know, angry old Balon Greyjoy, like, you know, just one after the other people who were just so flawed and, you know, driven mad by authority and by power. And it's interesting that, you know, that Danny is really now decisively forming this kind of misfit toys coalition, this sort of, you know, can we all of us, you know, wounded children of horrible fathers, can we kind of come together and do something differently? I mean, that just resonated on a lot of different levels, even beyond the fact that it was so cool to sort of see, like, you know, in this world that is just full of, like, mad kings and horrible wardens of the North, these two really powerful women sort of uniting together for common cause. I I just thought, however much, like, some people, not me, obviously, but some people, like, may have complained about all the Greyjoy time this season, you know, that really really paid it all off for me. We also have that absolute internet nuking budding relationship there between Yara and Danny. You know, last time we saw Yara, we saw her uh, making out with this uh, prostitute in the brothel, which clued us into the fact that uh, that uh, Yara likes women. And then, you know, that set up perfectly. And at the time, you know, you see that and it seems like, oh, you know, is there is there a point to knowing that, you know, in in this character? And then, yes, you know, it, it, it pays off in this scene where, uh, you know, she says that her her uncle Iran is uh, looking to propose marriage to her. And uh, while she isn't proposing that, she has that hilarious line where she's like, yeah, but, you know, I'm I'm up. I'm up for anything, um, <laughs> you know, instantly getting uh, fans, uh, creating all sorts of uh, uh, shit fantasies between uh, Yara and Danny. <laughs> I'm sure you would probably realize this, James, because like I, I, I obviously, you know, I, I'm kind of horrible at guessing where things are going. But it did strike me that, I mean, you know, Game of Thrones in an episode that had two major battle sequences, one of them entirely landlocked, one of them involving, you know, like, you know, kind of ship to, to, to city action. I mean, we now may be leading into a kind of 300 Rise of an Empire style ship to ship combat scene because we have Danny and her kind of corner of the Iron Fleet and then we have Euron and his fleet. I mean, it, this seems so crazy to me because, I mean, you know, anything involving water action scenes is just so costly. But I, I don't know, like, I was kind of like, oh, I guess maybe that could happen next season, which would be, like, awesome. I mean, you know, I, I can only imagine, like, Miguel uh, Sapochnik would, would would love to know how many days he, he would have to uh, shoot that that scene, but um, we should shift to the main bastard bull uh, segment of our episode now, because so much happening up there outside of Winterfell. Um, you know, you would sort of tease this a little bit in your great write up before the season started, but just the the size of the two armies and, and how the the episode could really take its time setting them up. Um, just really captivating filmmaking. Uh, you know, how did you kind of feel about how the Battle of the Bastards played out? What really impacted me was how director Miguel Sapochnik just did this amazing job, you know, filming every single scene. Every single beat was gorgeous to look at. And throughout the episode and the Marine scenes, too, there was this focus on hyper clarity. There was nothing nothing that was remotely confusing in all of that. And yet, 
he showed chaos. There was plenty of scenes that tried to capture the chaos of battle, but at no point were you confused as, as to what was going on. Even in that amazing sequence, and we're sort of jumping around a bit here with uh, Jon Snow after the, the, the incredible horse charge uh, scene where he's just going across the battlefield, basically looking for people to kill. And there's all this chaos going on around him. And it's this long extended, seemingly single take shot. And, the entire time you understand exactly where he is. You understand exactly what's going on and you watch us and you just shake your head and go, how come we see so many movies that are made, which they spend $200 million and they can't film a cohesive, coherent action sequence. And yet this show in every moment uh, in that battle, you you had total clarity of exactly what was going on, and it was just some thrilling stuff to watch. Yeah, so thrilling, and I, I'd really recommend everybody needs to read your great interview with the director, uh, Miguel Sapochnik, because, you know, the way that this episode was shot is so interesting. I mean, obviously, this is a show with high production values, but, you know, to your point, James, like, as big as the production values were, you know, this is not a kind of uh, this is not a project where they can just blow two hundred million dollars and sort of just do things for the sake of doing them. Like, and I think that really contributes to the fact that you know every shot felt really perfectly chosen, and the way that uh, you know almost kind of like in the background, you kept on seeing the, the, these little details that clued you into how the battle was going so that, you know, you had that awesome, you know, uh, design to look like one take action moment with Jon Snow and then lots of fighting. And then I just remember, like, there were so many close-ups and then suddenly there was a longer shot and that's when you first saw these just islands of dead bodies or, you know, dead and or nearly dead soldiers that were just forming together and people started to crawl over them like just really great kind of you know subtle work in the background while in the foreground there was always crazy crazy intense action happening and again you know not for nothing to be able to do that and be cutting between so many different characters you know whether it's kind of Davos and Ramsey sort of watching the battle happen from from off to the side to all the stuff up close um I I did find I I was sort of wondering if one of the key ways of of orienting the action was to uh was to always be sure to have one one in the frame just so you know just so you'd you'd kind of know like you know okay like if if the giant is there then I think I sort of know where everything else is but yeah I mean what were your kind of like like favorite bits from all of that James I mean the the, the sequence with Jon Snow climbing his way out of the sort of body pyramid was like that was very you know like in Kill Bill when she gets buried alive that was just very claustrophobic in a way that I found horrifying but also kind of exciting yeah and that scene is meant to be very key for his character too because ever since he was resurrected Jon Snow has been in this sort of existential funk. And, you know, he goes to Melisandre before the battle and says, you know, don't bring me back. And that's a scene where it visually represented what he told uh, us earlier in the season that death was like. He said, you know, there was nothing. It It was just darkness. And so he's in there and the light is going away as more and more people pile on top of him and they're fighting and he's at risk of being uh, just another body in one of those, you know, accumulating body piles. And he decides 
you know, that that darkness, uh, you know, that uh, that they saw before when he perished, you know, he doesn't want to go back to that. He wants to climb his way out to the light. And so that's what he does. And there's that rebirthing moment as, as he gasps, you know, you know, uh, <laughs> out towards the sky. And yeah, and that was just incredible shot and it, it basically counterbalances the fact that let's face it he completely screwed up this battle i mean he <laughs> did exactly the wrong thing you know they have this they had this strategy meeting before where they talk about how they're going to get ramsey to charge and they're going to trap him in a pincer movement and you know you know encircling him and coming in from the sides and that's exactly what ramsey instead convinces them to do through that amazing scene and this has to be easily uh one of my favorite scenes in in the in, in the entire show ramsey pulls out his trump card of rick and stark and there's this great lead up to that with with all the the men on the lines and the horses and you know you see ramsey's horse come out and then you see ramsey and you see he's got the knife and there's the rope and then it's rick on and you're like oh no what's he gonna do and you have this amazing reaction shots of kit harrington as john snow you know, just just watching, trying to figure out what's going to happen and feeling so helpless, you know, given the distance between them in terms of his options. And uh, I just thought that entire sequence with Rickon, I mean, if you're going to kill a Stark, this is the way to kill a Stark. I mean, this is the, 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 the it was it was just it was so uh, it was such an earned scene. Well, and and I find that scene also, you know, that scene was also interesting because we kind of had it pre-framed for us by Sansa. And one of the things that I think really struck me, you know, when you get past the pure spectacle of this episode, there's such resonance in Battle of the Bastards for our kind of understanding of kind of where John's head is at and where Sansa's head is at. Because, you know, Sansa kind of tells John, like, you know, first of all, why are you not talking to me about this at all? Because I clearly know Ramsey better than any of, of you guys do. But, I, you know, buried underneath that was also, you know, this assertion by John of, listen, you know, I've fought beyond the wall. Like, I've fought much worse than him. And you kind of realize that Jon Snow in this really interesting way has always been segmented off from the rest of this world. And he's, his fight has really been a more classical and sort of more romantic fantasy where like, you know, there is a really obvious evil that Jon Snow has been fighting in the case of the White Walkers. And, you know, like as much as he had, as much as he's had to kind of like navigate lots of different, uh, you know, you know, alliances, like for him, there's always this kind of purity of purpose. And I'm so struck by the fact that, you know, the second he kind of goes south of the wall and he's facing off uh, off against, you know, someone who's kind of really played the Game of Thrones, he winds up making all the wrong decisions and kind of walks right into his trap. Whereas Sansa, you know, she from the start has the very cold-blooded but totally on-point assertion that, you know, we can't assume that we can save Rickon. He he may as well already be dead. Like, you know, we we can't beat these guys just because we know we're on the we're on the side of right. Like, you know, we we have half as many soldiers as they do. You know, we we need to do something else to win here. And you know, to me, that's why in a weird way this episode is simultaneously kind of a win for Jon Snow, but also a bit of a loss because, you know, as you point out, James, in that moment, even as he's kind of crawling his way back to life, 
if Sansa doesn't call up Littlefinger, then Jon Snow still dies. It's, right. just, it's, it's interesting that, like, the show really managed to frame it as even though these two people are on the same side now, they still have radically different philosophies. And, you know, Sansa's philosophy really wins out in the end, which is just, you know, interesting to think about where that leaves their characters. Uh, this, was, this was such a great, I mean, people have said this, we've said this a lot, this is a great Sansa season. This was an incredible episode for her and just Sophie Turner in that last season Scene, like the amount of stuff that's going on behind her eyes. This, I mean, just totally what an incredible episode for that character. Sansa's line that I think was probably in some ways most impactful to me is when Jon Snow tells her, don't worry, I'll protect you. And she says, you can't protect me. Nobody can protect anybody. And to me, that line, as much as any line that she said this season since, you know, post Darth Sansa transformation really shows how much she's changed. And there's an interesting idea or a controversial idea presented that Ramsey has not just impacted her and made her stronger, but also sort of left some traces of himself uh, in her that he's like imprinted himself on her a little bit. And maybe that will help her survive more in the future. But there's like this one scene you know, during the parlay, which is another one of my favorite scenes in this episode, where we just had some just great showcase uh, for, for Ramsey Bolton in, the, in that scene, you know, with the horses um, uh, on the hill. She says to him, you're you're going to die tomorrow. Sleep well. To me, that was so <laughs> chilling because that's like the type of thing that Ramsey says. You know, that's the type of thing mm-hmm. that, you know, that sort of, you know, messing with somebody's head, uh, you know, with sarcasm that he would say to sort of torment somebody. And and I found that very interesting because that's such a nonsense thing to say in that moment. Totally. And, you know... I think this is really why, as much as this was a victory for the John Sansa Greater Alliance, you do just feel like, I mean, these are two people who've had two different experiences, each kind of wounded in, in their own way. But, you know, on some level, even though Jon Snow has literally died, there is still a... Not quite naive, but there is still a kind of fundamental optimism that, you know, kind of runs throughout him and and throughout his his character arc. And, like, to your point exactly, like, with Sansa, you know, even before Ramsay, this was just someone who had just experienced years of terror and horror and people she loved being killed right in front of her. And, you know... There is sort of this this real core idea in A Song of Ice and Fire that so many of the people, you know, what doesn't kill them does make them stronger. And, you know, becoming a, a eunuch only leads to Varys becoming a, you know, the, the most powerful person in, in Westeros in some respects. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm so taken with that. But at the same time, yeah, like that last shot of Sophie Turner kind of walking away, like that is like kind of full Darth Sansa in a really interesting way. This idea of like, you know, she has a officially left behind childhood things like she she is now the person who is smiling as you know the dogs tear somebody to pieces which which used to which used to sort of be ramsey bolton's stock in trade so and uh you know you know how do we feel about losing uh rickon stark and he still didn't say one line of dialogue because he hadn't said one word this whole season Poor, poor Rickon. Like, like, James, like, don't you want to kind of get, like, you know, I, I feel like uh, sometimes Lost would sort of do those episodes where they would just kind of go back and show 
the whole show f- from the perspective of like one particular character. Like that's kind of what I want for Rick on. Like here's a guy who was you know barely even old enough to walk when the show started. For him, life has just been an endless stream of you know losing people and needing to go on the run. Who even knows what happened while he was on the run? I I just I I do kind of like weep for him. I mean he's just s- such a complete bystander in all of this. Frankly though, James, I I, I weep a lot more for a one one though. I think it's fair to say that was the biggest uh, tragedy of the whole episode that our favorite giant wound up uh, finally finally getting it was James the first hundred arrows didn't do it that that, that, that last arrow that was the one that uh, finally took his life I think <laughs> yeah and and to your point about how you know that was really here Ramsey's important tipping point he didn't even need you know, to fire that last one, you know, he's already lost and one, one is already mortally wounded and he just did it to be a dick because that's just who he is, you know? And that was just so in character for him. You know, he, he, he's going to have one more kill if, if you will. And, you know, that led into that awesome, uh, you know, one-on-one combat scene between John and Ramsey and every arrow that he fired at him, I, I just it's like I flinched on the couch with every impact on his shield. That was that was so cool. Now it's time for the most exciting part of the show, the time when we ask you Game of Thrones trivia. That's right. Each week we are asking a trivia question and giving out a prize to the person who can correctly guess the answer. Uh, And then we take all the correct answers and then do a a random drawing to decide who's going to win our special Westeros-themed prize. This week's question is about the late, not-so-lamented Ramsey Bolton. Now we all know that Ramsey Bolton, he had this issue where he really liked to kill people. And of course, you know, when you kill lots of people, you will inevitably kill people who have themselves killed people. So, to get a chance to win this week's Game of Thrones trivia prize, email gotpodcast at ew.com and tell us, in list form, who Ramsey Bolton killed, who had themselves also killed people on screen in Game of Thrones. That is the killers that Ramsey Bolton killed. Email all the answers to gotpodcast at ew.com. We are looking for at least four, but we'll take more. Um, All right, uh, James, uh, this is now the time when we get to shift into full-on Westeros correspondent mode, uh, and you can tell us all about what it was like being on set for the Battle of the Bastards. Walk us through it, James. <laughs> uh, well, it, I had been going to the Game of Thrones set since season two, but I had never been set for a battle before. And uh, this one was in Northern Ireland, and um, it was in this deep green valley called uh, Saints Field, I believe. And uh, you drive out there, you go past all these produ- production checkpoints, you pass all these fields and streams, and then you switch to uh, this uh, four-wheel drive to, to, to take you... Like, like like across the countryside to, to get to the to the set and the set was was like pretty much monitored and protected there was one photo that leaked out of uh, Jon Snow on the battlefield many months ago which really dismayed uh, the production but uh, pretty much they're able to, to to keep it entirely sealed off which was a pretty big task in and of itself I think one of the first things that struck me just coming onto that set is you know, you're, you're looking at this green valley uh, where, you know, there's no real snow and the tree line 
surrounding this valley, you're talking about these trees that are like 40, 50, 60 feet high about, and they're all frocked with this fake white snow. Now, usually when you want to make trees look like they have snow on them in the distance and in a movie or TV show nowadays, you just use CGI. What the Thrones team did is they spent, I think it's like two months frocking all these trees it, 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 like like hundreds of trees so that whenever they pointed the camera any direction, you would see this snowy tree line in the background. To me, I mean, it, it's 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 a one hand of small thing, but a big thing. And you realize, my God, how much work went into dressing this entire valley as a set. And they and they kept having to re like, like touch up the frocking like like every night. So like in the middle of the night, there'd be people frocking these trees. I mean, what you have here is you have like uh, 500 extras that were trained as uh, soldiers for both the armies. You have about 600 crew member. You have like four four camera crews. I mean, it's a whole army in, in and of itself uh, in this field. And um, it had been raining for a few days before I got there. So the, the mud was like when you step, you have to like really pull your foot out and sometimes your foot just like pops out, out of, out of your, your, your boot. <laughs> the production gave uh, visitors what they called wellies, you know, the, these, these like knee high rubber boots. Apparently I have the same foot size as, as uh, Aiden Gillen. So I was like walking around in little fingers, rubber boots, you know, during my days on set, which was, which is sort of rad. Um, you were kind of saying too, James, I mean, and again, this just shows the, the kind of density of, preparation that went into this episode like you had these kind of different people from the two armies and the two different armies had actually trained in their own kind of separate manner right as a way to sort of like try to really like get across the idea that these are you know these aren't just like you know choreographed fighters fighting each other these are really two different kinds of of fighting philosophies coming together on the uh, battle right that's exactly right um they had a military advisor uh, there, who's exactly the sort of like large drill sergeanty personality that 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 you kind of want and expect, and they they yeah they train them separately. Uh, so you're either part of Snow's army or you're tra- part of the Bolton's army, and they try to create a certain amount of rivalry while they're training them, so that when they put them on camera together, that rivalry hopefully comes across a bit on screen. And there was one part I saw when they're doing the. Uh, the Bolton shield wall and the military advisor was like, you know, at one point, you know, one of the couple of the shields were moving just slightly because, you know, these are really big, heavy shields that they're holding and they're having to hold them for, you know, like 10 hours on set every day. And the advisor was just going, who's new on shields? Nobody's new on shields. That was shit. Shields do not move. And he's just like, just like laying into them. You know, and it just speaks to the amount of perfectionism that that, that was going on when trying to, to get those shots. Well, and now, so can you talk a bit about, I mean, like, uh, you know, the, the, the energy level on the set on a day like this must be so interesting. Because on one hand, like, when they're on, they need to be so on. And yet, like, as you point out, you know, they're kind of there for, for like 10 hours at a time. So, yeah, like, like was there, like, like, like during shooting, were there just, like, screams kind of, like, you know, pouring out of, uh, of this valley? Like, you know, like, uh, you know, war cries and uh, full metal jacket war faces and stuff? Yeah, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, one actor... Um uh, described it as like being like performing a at a heavy metal concert, but with like guitars with with with, with like swords instead of guitars. <laughs> There's this one point where 
uh, there's like 50 to 100 people like fighting all at once and you see all of them with their swords and their outfits and they're and they're covered in you know in fake blood and 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 mud and they're all screaming and fighting at once and you're standing there and pretty much your entire field of vision is full of people freaking out and sword fighting and trying to kill each other and even though you know it's all fake you know you know this isn't real it still feels Real. It still feels like you're watching, like the closest thing you'll hopefully ever get to to to, to watching uh, war actually happen. Uh, you can feel this almost like tactile sense of of like of like energy and rage, like like coming off all all the people fighting. With a scene like this, I'm always so interested because whatever is happening on screen and however many people there are on screen, it always seems like, you know, there's like this other army of people behind the scenes who are kind of making it all happen. So just like the size of it all must have been interesting. I mean, I, you were you were saying that like there was stuff like how um, like they actually had the the crucifixes burning the whole time. So there's just like like that extra weirdness going on. Like just <laughs> give us a sense of like, you know, what the overall uh, environment like behind the scenes is. As, as they were filming this. Yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't have as many crucifixes as you saw. Like every everything gets multiplied. Like like 500 extras get turned into 8,000. I think they had like <laughs> two, maybe three crucifixes that that were turned into <laughs> how many was it in, in in the shot like 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 five or six. But I mean, they're on fire and you you can like smell like the propane from it. You can feel the heat coming off it. It adds this extra level of like apocalyptic intensity. And the other thing that was really impressive there was was that body pile. I mean, you're looking at this pile, and it looks like about like 25 feet high, and you have this mixture of of like uh, makeup made, you know, very realistic looking uh, dummies, and then you have like actual actors who have been made up. And you have our, and some of the actors are playing dead bodies. Some of them are playing people that are like dying, but you know, but are still alive. And you look at the body pile, and even just from a few feet away, it's hard to tell which are the real people and which are the fake people. <laughs> and it's this amazing sort of like like heaping tower of carnage that they were fighting against. Well, so, so I mean, so, so James, like, there's, like, the body, I mean, th- th- there's so many parts of this scene. There was the body pile, there was the shield wall, um, in your kind of great chat with Miguel Sapochnik, like, he was saying that, I mean, you know, they initially, you know, they were going to have less days, and then they had more days, but then they had to kind of, like, improvise at some point. Like, I mean, just putting this all together seems so absurd. Like, again, on a on a sort of, like, rough equivalent of a TV show schedule. Um, I mean, like, uh, what was the stuff that they had to kind of, like, like, like improvise as they were filming the uh, the uh, battle sequence. Yeah, that whole scene where uh, Kit is trampled and then rebirths, that was actually a substitute for something else. And, and I don't know what what the other thing, the original plan was, but they had an original plan that was scripted. And because of all the rain and the schedule, they couldn't do what they were originally planning. And so Miguel came up with that idea instead, you know, something that they could do within the, within the time they had that wouldn't add any extra uh, visual effects or, or actual fighting and watching kit down there in the mud, uh, having to do that where he's being trampled and, and he's, he's, he, and he fights his way back up again. And he's doing this over and over 
again, you know, I, I like to, I, I, I like to consider myself vaguely fit. And I'm just looking at that guy and I'm like going, I don't know how he has that much energy to be able to do this like insane high intensity interval training uh, thing where he's doing that much intensity over and over over again like all day long (laughs) he was shirtless on set briefly and um and that was like uh, seeing like CGI in real life. It was like, wow, that's that doesn't even look like like an actual human chest. <laughs> and, you know, when he's down in that mud, you just see on camera, you just see mud. So you think, oh, you know, big deal. He's in mud. But the mud on that set is mud. It is horse poop. It's horse urine. It's been trampled and walked over for for, you know, the past 20 days. Uh, it's it's disgusting. And there's also uh, lots of bugs, too. I was in one of the production tents and uh, and it was like arachnophobia in there. There were so many damn spiders and I hate spiders more than anything. I was, I you know, and they're like, you just look at the ground and it's just like spiders. And, you know, Kit was just down in that uh, for hours taking that uh, that that pummeling. Can you imagine, I mean, you know, you think about a performer like Aiden Gillen, who plays Littlefinger, been on the show forever, you know, his scenes are always like, you know, they're kind of fun dialogue scenes, and, you know, he gets to go to all different kinds of places. Then you get Kit Harrington. This is the guy who, each season, he is called upon to do all of the, like, super physical, strenuous labor, like, last year with Hard Home, and this year with this one, he's he's got mud and spiders everywhere, like, he definitely, I mean, as the sort of, like, you know, action hero of the series I, I guess he i guess he knew what he was uh what he was signing on for but yeah he's he's definitely like like like, like the athlete of, of the cast which, which i find so fascinating um, yeah i got to see one of kit shots where he was doing one of his multi-kill and i even think this shot actually even made it in um where he's attacking one person after another after another after another and to watch when he's doing this sword fight thing where he's He's able to t- to remember all these minute movements, uh, you know, one after another, after another, after another, you know, when you're exhausted and you're tired and you're having to do all this other all these other scenes as well. Uh, it's it's pretty impre- impressive because he's very committed to wanting whole movements. He, he always says he, you know, he doesn't want an editor to have to cut around to do a bunch of quick cuts to make him look like he's a good swordsman. He wants to to be able to have the camera not cut away and show him do one thing after another, after another, and after another, and do like these 14-beat um, sword fight sequences. Now, now, James, let's get down to brass tacks here, though, because you were on set. That's cool. We've heard about that. What'd you do? What'd you do after you left the set, though? Uh, yeah, we got to, uh, the HBO publicist and I got to have dinner with um, with uh, Christopher, who plays Tormund, and uh, Liam Cunningham, who uh, plays Sir Davos and Kit at a, a local uh, bar restaurant. And this is at the time when Kit was still very much incognito in terms of his participation in this. So having him out anywhere was 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 always a bit of a bit of a risk but uh at the same time he didn't want to just like spend you know every night in in his apartment so so he came out and that was it, it was so much fun uh you know you know ha- having beer with with these guys and it was interesting to see kit at the end of of a day of doing that because you know he you could just see 
how exhausted that guy was. I mean, he's just, you, you get this sort of thousand yard stare after a while, you know, you know, it's, it's like, just imagine your hardest day at work. And that's kind of what that was like at one point. Uh, he showed us this, uh, photo on his phone of his bathtub. And it was his bathtub after he took a shower after the set. And, uh, and it was just like full of this dark Brown water from like all the mud that came off him after shooting. All right. Uh, so uh, now is the part of the show when we're going to go through and do some reader questions. We of course call this part of the show, dark wings, dark words. <laughs> Um, so, uh, remember you can always send us questions or comments to GOT podcast at EW.com, or you can tweet at us. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. We had a tweet come at us last night from at Fundy 08. Uh, Louisa said, why wasn't ghost at the battle? It would have been great to see him at the parley growling at Ramsey when he showed Shaggy Dog. Oh, Shaggy Dog. I sort of forgot all about that. Um, th- this is a good question because I I had theorized openly that Ghost, one of the last d- direwolves standing, would bite the dust in this episode, and that did not wind up happening. Uh, well, James, I- I'm guessing this might have just been a purely budgetary concern, right? Like, with, with, with everything else going on, like, how do you fit in a, a-, a direwolf into all of that? And, you know, I don't know if it was budgetary. It, I mean, my guess, and this is just pure guess, because this this is something I, I really don't know. I My guess is probably they thought about staging this battle and what it was going to look like, and they probably thought... How is Ghost not dead pretty quickly in in this battle? And and they probably didn't want to kill a ghost. So so maybe the behind the scenes logic was John knew that you know with all the horses and the charging and, and all that, that that Ghost would probably be a goner in this. So maybe he decided to kennel him and tie him to a tree or something for 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 the duration of the battle. All right, uh, one more question here from Matt Sims. Will Bran be able to sign into the Weirwood Times and archives via Wintersfell's Godswood? Uh, love that phrasing. I, I'm, I'm guessing what he's basically asking there is, can Bran do all of his magic tree prophecy uh, flashbacking stuff once he gets to Winterfell? I have been open about the fact that I don't really pretend to understand all the Three-Eyed Raven stuff. Um, my sense, James, was that like that tree that the raven was trapped inside of had some real special powers. But we definitely know that like, you know, up north, there is this sort of interesting kind of linked energy that seems to combine all of the great old trees of the land. So like, I mean, theoretically, I mean, the deeper question that I think Matt is asking here is, are we going to get another flashback to the Tower of Joy? And like, I think that the gods would could maybe do that. Possibly, I'm 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 answering this question with more question marks. What do you think, James? Well, you know, the last time we heard about Bran, he was headed to Castle Black, though not uh, not Winterfell, right? Oh, that's right. He's gonna go hang out with Ed. Dolorous Ed is 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 yeah. is, 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 is finally gonna get to hang out with another Stark yeah. child. <laughs> Wait, he was still having visions while on the run, though, after they left the tree. Yes. Remember, because that's when he 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 saw the, the the Mad King. That's right. Yeah. So so actually, maybe he doesn't even like really need any any sort of like tree activation for his power anymore, which is too bad. Because James, you know how much you know how much I, I love the flora 
of Westeros. I'd be I'd be very disappointed if we don't get a lot more fun times with the flora of uh, the great frozen north. Um, all right, uh, that about wraps it up. Uh, remember, you can send us any questions or comments leading into this se- the season finale at gotpodcast at ew.com. Uh, James, follow him at James Hibbert and check out all of his great write-ups on the Battle of the Bastards on EW.com right now. Come back here next week because we're going to have some more fun chats about the season finale of Game of Thrones.